George R. R. Martin is delightful. Anything involving him, you should check out. He has signed off on an incredible exclusive version of his original Game of Thrones novels called the Enhanced Editions, now on iBooks. We're talking maps. We're talking house histories. We're also talking author notes from George R. R. Martin himself. We're talking like the man who created this whole thing has contributed some notes to the Enhanced Editions, a truly enhanced experience. These books are available exclusively on iBooks books go to apple.co slash game of thrones to check them out not available in all countries but probably available where you live the game of thrones enhanced editions a truly great way to bring the books to life so this might be the most useful podcast episode we have done because last night's game of thrones east watch really rewarded this super fan who pays a lot of close attention to the mythology of the show. There were several key moments that were potentially hugely significant, but only if you remembered the backstory of those scenes. So we're going to break down episode five, which was another super fast paced episode in terms of stuff happening. And in terms of really fast travel around the map, uh, we got reunions, we got some new meetups, we got some twists. I'm James Hibbard. I'm here with Darren Franich. Darren, what was your quick takeaway of Eastwatch? You mentioned the fast travel aspect of this episode, and I'm really struck by the fact that we are now in the phase of this fantasy storytelling. It's kind of like when you play Final Fantasy VII and the first 20 hours are literally you just like going through one city and then slowly walking across one continent. And then by like hour 45, you have a like flying ship that just carries you all over the world. I really do appreciate the fact that the storytelling is just sped up to such a crazy extent that... Somebody like Davos can go from Dragonstone to King's Landing, back to Dragonstone, up to Eastwatch by the sea over the course of a single hour. It reminded me a lot, James, I'm going to get our necessary shout out to HBO's Rome in here early. Rome was always really good at this, that HBO show that could cover just like sometimes years of time in like a single montage. It feels like Thrones is getting closer to that and uh, really liked that. I'll also just say this was was a strange episode in a lot of ways. Like, I felt like this was kind of getting us back to some of the weird, war-torn melancholy that defined a lot of the middle years of the show, and I really liked that, coming off of an episode that was a super intense, awesome battle scene, leading into another episode that looks like it's going to have another very different, intense battle scene. I kind of appreciated the chance that some characters got to kind of, uh, not really relax, but at least talk about how they're feeling, but but all this in the context of something that moved faster than maybe any other episode has in terms of pure chronology. So it was definitely a ride for sure. How did you feel about it? Right. Yeah. You, you bring up a good point there. It's on one hand sort of felt in some ways more fast paced than anything we have seen. Yet on the other hand, coming after the uh, loot train battle or, or dragon massacre, really, it felt like a chance to take a pause moment after this battle and have different characters react to the outcome of that and regroup, literally in some cases, uh, regroup into new groups. So it felt both like a sort of pause, breather, come down, regrouping episode, but also, yeah, this sort of teleportation, like traveling around Westeros that, that we have at this point as, uh, as characters get where they all need to be for the next phase of uh, the story. 
Yeah, I will also just say the most exciting part happened early. A new addition to the opening credits location map thingamabob, for lack of a better word. And I was literally just about to complain, like, huh, like, in the books, that's specifically called Eastwatch by the Sea. And in the show, they're just calling it Eastwatch. Like, I don't know how I feel about that. And I told this to my fiance, and she said, Eastwatch by the Sea sounds like a bed and breakfast. And I was kind of like, That's exactly oh, yeah. what, that was exactly a joke I was going to make. Yes, it, 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 it sounds, sounds like this charming, you know, Cape Cod bed and breakfast little, oh, hey, TripAdvisor ha- has really good reviews for Eastwatch watch by the sea, you know, and you can get eggs Benedict on Sundays. But let's, let's kick it off, James. Uh, aftermath of the loot train battle, we see Jamie and Braun emerge like far down the river, clearly one of the few remaining surviving members of the Lannister Alliance. Just a great little moment be- between the two of them, of Braun kind of like saying, FYI, you have a big dragon problem. I don't really have a big dragon problem. And I loved Nikolai Coaster-Waldau's performance in this scene. Just kind of re- Realizing, like, we're like cavemen and we just got attacked by like pilots and airplanes, essentially. That is the equivalence of the kind of weaponry that, that they have on their side, uh, which led right into maybe my favorite scene of the episode as far as just really getting to the core of what's going on with the war torn nature of Westeros now. Who knew that Randall Tarley was going to like come off as one of the more noble figures in this episode, right? Did you kind of feel that way in his sort of final moments with uh, Danny? It's hard to think of somebody as noble when you're also thinking of them as stupid because (laughs) i mean she's she's giving them a way out they would still keep their lands and titles they would get to join her side of things they can't be all that thrilled with cersei so i mean you're basically dying for your pride and then to take your son along with you i mean you, obviously, uh, Dickon also had a choice, and by the expression on his face, he looked like he'd rather be Drogon's pooper scooper than than, than <laughs> like go than, than, than like go join his father. That, but he's got that loyalty to his father to a fault. A lot of this show is about the relationships between uh, kids and their fathers, and this is one that just went right, right straight into hell in that terrible execution scene. But despite Tyrion uh, and Varys are doing hand-wringing over her choice. To me, it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, she can't go around Westeros going, you get a cell, you get a cell, like some Targaryen Oprah. She has to, she, <laughs> you have to make the, these hard decisions. And and the lords are going to be people that, uh, that people are going to follow by example. And she had to show that she's offering the, the carrot of this new new world order of potentially more progressive and an enlightened way of living. But if you don't go along with that, she's also willing to do the old school kill them all strategy as well. Yeah, yeah. And and noble is a strong word. And like, I, I didn't mean to imply that there was like anybody necessarily purely good in the scene, but it did strike me that Randall Tarley, for all of his profound failings as a father, and you could argue like, as Tyrion sort of pointed out to him, you've only been following this current queen for like a day. This would not be the like first time you have, you have changed sides over the course of the last several phases of Iron Throne swapping. But it did strike me that, I guess this gets to the core of why I thought this episode was strange. And I mean that as a compliment, 
I kind of forget sometimes just how weird Danny is. Like, I, I forget, like, wow, yeah, like, to the outsider, even if you're very aware of her, if you dig beneath the sort of Lannister propaganda of her as someone who's going to come and, like, do awful things, like, here she is, someone who was sort of born as she was leaving the country that she now kind of lays claim to. She's traveled all over the world. She's lost everything and gained everything several times over. She has literally, as literally, as you can get, given birth to gigantic monsters of doom who she considers her children. And there was that moment of just kind of like, yeah, like, more than anything, even if you support her policies, you do you are kind of a little bit on the side of somebody like Dickon Tarly, where you're like, this is not what I was taught as far as the kind of person who should be ruling this place. And I, I was I was very taken by that, and I thought that Amelia Clark's performance just was simultaneously very magisterial, but also like a little bit inhuman too. Like you're very aware, like yeah, like you've decided this yes. is the kind of ruler that you're going to be. Your people maybe wanted you to win this war bloodless and ashlessly, but uh, there are going to be some charred ruins of corpses before this is over. And I just thought that to hit on all those tones with two characters who, frankly, I think we all hated, the two elder Tarleys, or I guess younger brother and, uh, and and father of Sam, just I thought that was super interesting in an episode that seemed to imply that like the wages of war make our ideal leaders into less ideal leaders sometimes. And I thought that was a really cool note to have. And also, wow, did they burn fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure not fast enough if you're them. <laughs> exactly. To kind of carry on from that dragon scene, though, James, and this gets into some stuff that like, I think is really going to reverberate like a depth charge in the finale, if not uh, going into next season. Danny comes back to Dragonstone. Jon Snow's just hanging out there. A lot of kind of pensive cliffhanging with Jon Snow in this season. I Probably he just likes the view because it's not snowing all the time. Drogon comes down, gives him a smell, seems to kind of like him. Loved that kind of close-up of him sort of just like playfully, scarefully, like all kinds of emotions running through his head, just sort of petting the dragon. And then that kind of unreadable look on Danny's face was great too. Not like there was some moment of realization there, but I, I just, I loved how delicately that was handled as far as like the slow build of revelation of who John really is. How'd you kind of feel about it? a very different dragon sequence than we got last week? I saw that sequence and first of all, I was really struck by the effects because the skin of the dragon, the close-up of his snout, the, the eyes, the teeth. I mean, you're looking at that and you're going... Yeah, there's a dragon right there. You know, there, there's, there's no part of you that's thinking this is CGI or, or an effect. I mean, it looks fantastic. So there's a part of me that's just ad admiring the production of it. But yeah, I mean, Danny is just like, what is going on here that this, this illegitimate Stark bastard is somehow petting my like killer monster dragon? <laughs> Um, I half expected Drogon to you know turn to Danny, clear his throat for the first time, and go, "Hey, you know this guy's a Targaryen, right?" I mean, it was all but saying that in that scene. And of course, it's always great when your hostile antisocial pet likes the cute guy that comes over. It's like, oh, oh, that's cool. My my dragon approves of him. So yeah, there does seem to be some big time hinting going on there and uh it, it's and what i love about that scene is that it, it's sort of like the dragon 
is the only character that knows what's going on. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, the humans are like clueless as to what all this means. And the dragon's just like the one who knows what's what. I now really want to know which like beloved sort of older knighted actor would be the voice of Drogon. I'm kind of leaning towards Ian McKellen, but I could also see the guy who played Lord Grantham on uh, Downton Abbey too. <laughs> I would love it if Drogon had like some like American East Coast accent that was just like, completely <laughs> at odds with the rest of the world that you're watching. <laughs> what if Drogon is Jeff Bridges in like full Big Lebowski persona? Like, hey man, hey man, this guy's got Targaryen blood, man. <laughs> we're, we're, we're having some fun here, but there really was a lot of fun going on in Dragonstone this week. I loved that from this scene, this interesting moment between Danny and John, you kind of get this arrival of a long lost friend who's looking a lot better than he was the last time Danny saw him. Jorah Mormont, I'm convinced he just swam from the Citadel. Like he was just like, no, no time for a boat. I'm just gonna like head over towards towards Dragonstone. Um, great to kind of see him back in her service for really the first time in years, if you think about it. I mean, like, when did she kind of like initially send him away from Marine? Wasn't that the end of season four? Yeah, that that has been a while, and I'm always sort of fascinated by uh, Sir, Sir Jorah's unrequented crush on Danny. And so there's this moment where she introduces him. Oh, and here's my new friend, Jon Snow. And he looks at him and he's just like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like if I didn't have a chance with Dario around, I sure as hell don't have a chance with this guy around. I might as well go off to Eastwatch. I have no chance anymore. Were you thinking too, James? She's talking to Jon Snow. She's just come from burning uh, two members of Sam Tarly's family. Jorah Mormont arrives and says, oh yeah, like I went to the Citadel and I was cured. We're just kind of waiting with that scene where he was like, yeah, I was cured by, do you, do you know this guy, John? Actually, you might, because he knew my dad too. His name's Samuel Tarly. And John's like, oh yeah, I know Sam. He's great. Yeah, Tarly, he's great. And Danny's just like, uh-oh. Like, well, boy, <laughs> this is going to be awkward if we ever meet this guy. But bringing him back in was interesting. We'll kind of delve into his journey a little bit later. Lots of interesting sort of like people who are remnants of long gone storylines coming back in this episode. We sort of see up in Winterfell, Bran is having a fun warging time. He's kind of following some crows, I think. Not ravens, right? Some kind of blackbird. Some kind of bird that would not look out of place in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. He's kind of following them up north into the area where the great army of the dead is walking. Night King sees him. Brand sort of returns, says, we really got to send, no, we've sent some messages out. We really got to send some more messages out. And I loved how we seem to kind of follow that message as it was just sort of carried by ravens southward throughout Westeros, all the way down to the Citadel, where the old maesters are just kind of like sitting around, just kind of idly chatting about this. You can tell that like, they probably never really cared too much about what goes on like up at the wall and, and they care even less now. It's been interesting the time we've spent at the Citadel, James, and I guess the sense that time is over after this episode how did you kind of feel about this sort of big moment of sam sort of speaking to the sort of upper hierarchy of the maesters down at the citadel well, one thing I, I liked about the scene is that uh, the way the Maesters seem totally skeptical about the other storylines going on in the show. They're just like, yeah, that sounds like a bit of a stretch. And wait, <laughs> birds talking to cripples? What? They're like the bloggers of Westeros just kind of sitting around making snarky comments. And then Sam is like, hey, or 
we could help and like do something useful. And they're like, yeah, we could, or we could not do that and just continue to sit around eating soup and like reading. So yeah, I mean, it, I do like the, that Jim Broadbent's Archmaster. He's, he's not unreasonable. Unre- he's a reasonable guy. He's smart. He, he, he gets it to some degree, but he's just not far enough in the direction that Sam needs him to be to actually be helpful and and useful. He kind of he kind of balances that role pretty well. And, and and of course then we get the the scene with uh Samwell and Gilly reading over old scrolls by firelight and Gilly is like reciting various facts and you you think in this moment, okay, if I'm going to run to the bathroom, like this is the scene to do it in because all of a sudden it's like, you know, the brakes have been hit. The momentum has slowed to like, just like, you know, recounting facts in Westeros. And it's here that the showrunners drop in potentially one of the biggest revelations of the season. I mean, you, you have Gilly reading the scroll and she's talking about, about this high septon uh, who once did an annulment. What's an annulment? Yeah, that's when man gets a divorce and, and it's from this Prince Ragger guy. And if you're watching at this point, you're sort of like going, hey, wait, what? And then it's like, yeah, and he got an annulment and then he got married again. You're like, what, what? And then it's like, Oh, and you got, and it's in Dorn, and it's in secret. And at this point, you know, if you're a person that's been really paying attention to the, the, the Jon Snow stuff, you're like jumping off the couch. And <laughs> Sam's like, yeah, yeah. But then he just inter- interrupts her and starts like going off about something else. And from what we can gather here, I mean, the, the one thing that this show hasn't done is it hasn't explicitly said that Prince Rhaegar is Jon Snow's father. And it's seemingly almost certainly true but it just wasn't explicitly said but it, but if we assume that which you know most people do you know then that would suggest that this document is saying that prince Rhaegar legally left his wife married Lyanna Stark and therefore Jon Snow is not only a Targaryen but he is a legitimate Targaryen which would mean his claim on the iron throne is even more legitimate because he's a guy than than Daenerys is. So this is potentially a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, and, and to take the kind of like thousand yard glance at this for people who aren't super steeped in this, Rhaegar kidnaps Lyanna. That is the sort of story that we had heard way back in the pilot episode. Robert Biathian, who loves Lyanna, staring at her, talking about how much he hates Rhaegar. That was the moment that started Robert's rebellion that upended the Targaryen dynasty. If you want to say the multiple meanings of a song of ice and fire, this is it. Ice and fire. The kidnapping, quote unquote, of Lyanna Stark by fire. Prince uh, Rhaegar Targaryen, crown prince. And the implication that's always been kind of interesting and sort of bubbling under the surface and that we're getting closer and closer to discovering as a true revelation is like, it may have been a love song of ice and fire initially. These may have been two people, may, may have been two people who genuinely did love each other. They were married. We don't really fully know yet anything about the nature of their relationship. That's always been an interesting sort of subtextual mystery. Like, did everyone just get that wrong? And what this means, as you point out, James, is Jon Snow 
currently king of the north, could be, following the basic lines of secession, also the true-born king of Westeros. And this is something that right now in this moment, John is very focused on this whole let's kill the army of the dead thing, but could potentially create even more issues down the line. We've talked a lot about uh, this idea that if the north finds out he's a Targaryen, what would they think? Well, if the south finds out he's a Targaryen and they're all, people are back on board with this notion of a Targaryen monarchy, that could lead us in a very different direction. So just super interesting. And as you said, James, I love that it's buried amidst details in a book. It almost felt to me like it was like, yeah, guys, this is why you should read all the appendices, okay? Like in between <laughs> all of the random, in between all the random details about steps and uh, feces, there, there are very important plot points too. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we could go on and on about the significance of this because what it changes is it changes potentially, assuming all our assumptions are correct, the foundational assumptions about two of the major characters in the show. I mean, from the very moment we met Jon Snow, he's been a bastard. And we keep, we're told that over and over again. And this would mean he's not a bastard. From the very first moment we met Daenerys, we were told, okay, she, well, well first her brother, then, then her. She is the true heir to the Iron Throne. That throne is hers. She has the legitimate claim. She's been working under this assumption all this time. And that might not be true. So mm-hmm. it really turns these two major characters completely on, on their head in terms of what we have thought we knew about them this entire time. Yeah, and again, I love the fact that it's just introduced and Sam just kind of glides over it. Sam's feeling a little frustrated down in the Citadel, James, and I I wonder if his frustration is meant to kind of mirror ours. I mean, like, while so many things have been happening to so many other people, Sam does kind of feel quite strongly, like, what am I doing here, reading about the great works of other better men? Um, And this kind of leads him on his own little mini heist, going into the library, taking these important books that will hopefully have some uh, some indication of how to defeat the Night King. There's been a lot of helpful plot points in those books so far, so so perhaps uh, some of the ones that he grabbed will, will have some more interesting ways of uh, taking care of them. Well, I, I mean, since he's been there, he cured Sir Jorah's grayscale. He found <laughs> out about the dragon glass and Dragonstone, and he's unintentionally just learned probably the secret to Jon Snow's parentage. I think he's done a pretty good job there. I mean, you know, you know I know he's kind of down on himself, but I mean, bravo to Sam. I, I, I think that this has been been time well spent uh, there in Old Town. But um, speaking of, of bastards, uh, we should go over to Lee Bottom and King's Landing and their little adventure over there and talk about the return of one character who's off the stage for three seasons – and and looks better than ever. I mean, and he's and he's back. Uh, so, what do you think about the return of Gendry? This was really interesting. His arrival is when I realized, like, oh, wow, the pace of this show is just so much faster in this episode than maybe it's ever been. Because the reason why we're in Flea Bottom is we've sort of followed Davos there. He's in King's Landing, pulling some of his old smuggler's tricks, getting Tyrion in, because we've already established that plan is we need to talk to Cersei, have some kind of armistice. There's already some conversation about what the big trip up north is going to be about. But in this moment... 
We know why Tyrion is in King's Landing. Davos, though, says he's got a little errand to run in Flea Bottom. Get this great sort of like opening title sequence of Conan the Barbarian montage of just hands sort of smithing <laughs> away on some cool new piece of weaponry. And indeed, as you point out, it is Gendry. He's back. Joe Dempsey, you, you, you grew up good, kid. You're looking great. I have to say, James... I initially felt there was something a little too cute about this just because, um, you know, it was very interesting kind of reading what Joe Dempsey had to say about this scene and everyone should go read your interview with him. Um, He kind of talks about how, like, Davos is sort of a surrogate father to him. I was kind of like, looking back, I I, I don't know. I I guess hard for me to really picture them having developed that close of a relationship and the time we saw them together. But what, what totally sold this for me was just like the really easy chemistry between the two performers. I, I love the sense that like Gendry has been kind of waiting around wondering what's up with Gendry the same way that we all have. And I love right. that he was just a like totally ready to go. I'm very struck by the fact that he was a character that I think the show knew was important, but maybe also, like, didn't quite know, like, what to do with, and, like, that was a time where the show was really beginning to sprawl, and, like, you know, I think there's a reason why the joke about him just sort of rowing forever back to King's Landing is so funny. It did sort of feel like there was that sense of stranding him, and so I just felt, like, the feeling of, like, I'm ready. Like, I got my big hammer. Let's go. I was super invested in that. I thought that was such a great moment. Yeah, yeah. The one actually thing I didn't like is I didn't like the still rowing joke that uh, Davos made because that felt like fan service. It didn't feel like something that he would really say. It's such a clear reference to the purgatory that the limbo that that fans have been in with that character, having seen that as his last moment. So yeah. the, you know that that, that felt a, a bit too cute for me. I, I did I did find it funny that. That Davos is, you know, he's like the master smuggler, and 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 his big plan is, hey, let's park a rowboat on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, it's like, well, what if, dude, what if there'd been a whole scene of them approaching King's Landing and him like narrating, and then them finding a sewer system underneath the city? What? I am totally with you. I'd be intrigued to know. Uh, security must have been a, a little less tight back in the Onion Knights' uh, younger days, back when you only had to give like five gold pieces to a security guard to bribe them not not 15 but while we're meeting up with Gendry again Tyrion seeing somebody that he hasn't seen in a really long time um Tyrion and Jamie two figures who really if you think about it are I've rarely been together on screen but like so much history between these people so much history seeing these two performers again I thought it was interesting, the setting of where they met down in the shadows, surrounded by all the dragon skeletons. Production was kind of like, all right, like, we've built this set. We better use it a few more times, too. Um, But was most intrigued, I think, James, by the fact that, like, we began this season with all the Lannisters really arrayed against each other. And the idea that the cooling of these tensions, or at least the sort of from a boil down to a simmering of those tensions, was very, very interesting. Uh, How did you kind of feel about the reunion of uh, these two long-lost brothers? I mean, it was was great to see him back uh, together again. And I agree, by the way, with your comment earlier about how uh, Nikolai's performance in that first scene. I think that was the most shaken up we have seen Jamie since, like, since since he got his hand cut off, really. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the scene in which Jamie has so much anger towards his younger brother, but eventually they kind of find a way of working around to having a bit of an understanding. And 
it's, it's all because of this possibility of a temporary truce, which is absolutely works in the Lannisters' favor. Anything that puts this war on pause for them <laughs> is like a good thing for, for them at this point. I mean, if, if only give them more time to build like more giant crossbows. Yeah, exactly right. Interesting to see the two of them talking. We kind of go right from there into Jamie kind of bringing the possibility of this truce up to Cersei. Um, again, another kind of strange moment that I'm, that I'm still kind of like, you know, wrapping my head around. Cersei claims that she knew this meeting was taking place, that she knew that yeah. Jamie was going to be talking to Tyrion. It's very difficult for me to imagine like her not her letting Tyrion like, go. Yeah. Yeah. And in fairness, I, I understand this idea that like, you know, she has just gotten the information that Tyrion perhaps did not kill her son, which is like on the list of 30 reasons why she wanted to kill Tyrion. That was a pretty big one. I understand this idea of like, yeah, like it seems crazy this would happen and she wouldn't know. That was the one part of the whole episode that I was just sort of like, what? She's been like thirsting for his blood for like years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That definitely had had me a little bit surprised too. I mean, that that she would be that calculating and override her Tyrion hate to that degree to play the long game on that. But, you know, we also got a little news in that epi- that scene, too, in that she is pregnant and yeah. what that could mean. And they didn't really talk about the meaning of that, but what made it made me think of was, you know, the prophecy about Cersei that she was told when she was a... Uh, a rather snotty teenager by uh, Maggie the Frog. <laughs> and that was that she would have three kids and that they would all die and that someone younger and more beautiful would come along and take her place. And as we know, the prophecies on Game of Thrones don't always come true. Um, but she has been pretty convinced that this has been right throughout the entire show. But if now she's pregnant for a fourth time, what does that mean? You know, there's a, there's a couple different outcomes. She might die before she ever ends up having a child, or maybe the prophecy only went to a certain point in her life, and and, and now she's going to ha- have a child. That means the prophecy is incomplete or wrong somehow. So it, it raises a big question about this prophecy of her, and uh, raises the possibility of the Lannister line continuing after all. You're listening to Game of Thrones Weekly. Game of Thrones Weekly. A quick word about our sponsor, iBooks. They have these Game of Thrones enhanced editions of George R.R. Martin's novels that help you keep track of the storylines and the characters in a fun and interactive way. In this episode, Jon Snow goes from Dragonstone to Eastwatch. And with these enhanced editions, uh, they have these interactive maps that you can see. That's a really long way. You have to sail up past the Erie, past White Harbor, past the the Dreadfort. It's quite a hike. These books are currently uh, available exclusively on iBooks. Go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. They're available in most countries. But if you live north of the wall, you might be out of luck. We should point out that in an episode that really did harken back to the events of Robert's Rebellion, this stuff that happened earlier in the history of this show, back when Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon were still young men and and not yet dead men. Interesting to consider that if they were to give birth to this child and say, like, this child is a product of incest... 
Anybody over the age of 24 in Westeros right now remembers a time when all their rulers were products of incest because Targaryens loved their sister wives and uncle husbands and all that. So it's not as outside the realm. You know, I mean, as much as like there's always a lot of talk on this show about like, oh, like, you know, incest is very controversial within this world. If you're like Joe Schmo living somewhere in the Seven Kingdoms and you hear like, oh, yeah, new, new crown prince, uh, his, his parents are, are siblings. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like that used to happen all the time back in the old days. So I, I will just say um, two more notes on this. The fact that she was sort of discussing it with uh, Maester Kyburn, and I was kind of wondering, is there some indication here that perhaps he's been using some of his chemical cocktails to come up with some sort of intriguing fertility uh, drug of some kind? Not sure about that. Just throwing that fermented out there. Fermented crab, not perhaps? Sure, not sure what this baby's going to look like. Could be some good fermented crab. We know it's an aphrodisiac. Um, also, I uh, just want to throw out there my new theory for the end of this show is Jamie, Cersei, and a baby uh, die in a fire, and you think that's the end of the Lannisters, and then the last scene of the last episode is Maester Kyburn ducking out of King's Landing. You see he's holding a baby, and that baby has blonde hair! We'll see We'll see if that happens. <laughs> yeah, you know, one, one more point on, on, on that before we skip out of it is that moment where, where Cersei warns him, never betray me again, because by letting Tyrion go, that you know that is a betrayal of her. So to me, this is another beat. You know, we keep getting these beats setting up that there is going to be some big Jamie Cersei conflict down the road, and that feels like another foreshadowing nod to that. That that is absolutely at some point coming here. So uh, Tyrion manages to get out of King's Landing, happens to walk back to the parked boat at the exact wrong time, right as Davos has tried to talk his way out of, uh, you know, he a couple of guards He could have at least dressed arriving. down a little bit. And, 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 and instead of looking like this regal high lord and that, you could have put on some more inconspicuous, like, raggy clothing, in my opinion. Yeah, wear like a hood or like rock the sort of like pig pen from Peanuts look. And yeah, just like look like any other sort of random hobo from King's Landing. Um, he wanted to impress Jamie. You know, is, 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 is my opinion. He, he exactly. He, I think you're right. He was like, "Yo, yeah. Jamie, look at this sweet beard and sweet long hair that I'm that I'm rocking now. I'm going I'm going full Jesus, and I love it. And it looks very good on you too, Peter Dinklage. Um, that scene was great, though. A lot of great. I, I want to just call this out because you know, James, I've told you this. Davos is my favorite character in the books. I'm very struck by the fact that Liam Cunningham has so made the character his own. I mean, like Davos in the books is, I would say, like a less funny figure, someone who does feel this tremendous sense of duty. And I just feel like Liam Cunningham as a performer has such a tremendous lightness. Great moments of him kind of negotiating with the guards, which led right into later in the episode as all the young men around him are doing everything they can to run into danger. Davos is just like, nobody mind me. All I've done is managed to live to a, to a good old age. Like, I just loved that. Like, you know, again, Davos might have the best angle on, on everything, people. Every, every Everyone else over the age of 40 is dead now. Like, he's still doing okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the one thing that made me furrow my brow a bit, furrow my brow, did I really say that? I did. Um, was <laughs> him telling Gendry, oh, you know, lie to Jon Snow about who you are. Because that, I felt like, would he really do that? I mean, as, as much as he wants to help and protect, you know, Gendry, I mean, he feels, I mean, he, he kind of knows Jon Snow at this point. Although, I, I, I assume... I'm, I'm just now realizing this. It might be less about keeping it from Jon Snow than about keeping it from Daenerys. 
Uh, yeah. Now that I think about it, though, though, still, you would think that he would at least let Jon Snow in on it just because it, it, it doesn't seem like the type of thing that that he would he would want to lie to him about. But maybe I'm wrong. Listen, real talk. I have no idea why Davos went to get Gendry. I'm I'm struck by the fact that Davos seems more focused on Gendry than he does on his family, who I think is still around somewhere. Maybe I kind of forget how how much we covered that on the show. James, he brought Gendry along because Gendry has a hammer. Again, full credit to Joe Dempsey for like yeah, as you said, taking a somewhat awkward scene and making it really work. His sort of. <laughs> I like how he sort of approached Jon Snow, kind of a fanboy. There was something very, almost kind of like Casey Affleck as Robert Ford. Like, hi there, you're a bastard. I'm a bastard too. Like, our dads loved each other. I know. I've I've heard all about all their exploits. Do you want to talk about some of them? And Jon's just like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Like, my my dad died and your dad died. It's it's actually been pretty traumatic for me these last seven years or so. But sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. If you want if you want to talk it over. And then in my favorite reaction of it is uh, Gendry height shaming Jon Snow, which, which which he wasn't amused by at all, which I just loved. You know, <laughs> you know I, I appreciated all of that. Um, they set up northwards, and we'll sort of discuss that in a second. But let's also head up northwards, James. Winterfell, what's going on? Everything was going so great, and now things are not going great. And I'm a little out of sorts over this. I'm a little perplexed. Okay. So, all right, so talk. Arya, one thing people at Winterfell are great at is doing that sort of, you know, Shakespeare play, like looking at another scene happening from behind the bushes or from around corners. <laughs> Arya is sort of watching Littlefinger as he's kind of like setting about on various bits of, uh, you know, somewhat confusing mini espionage. Things are sort of a little bit tense up in Winterfell between the sisters. The Lords of the Eyrie, at least, seem to be making a lot of noise about the fact that they love what Sansa's doing and aren't so sure about Jon Snow. Sansa is sort of very casually sort of saying, like, yeah, yeah, guys, listen, I'm just up here taking care of things while he's down south. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Arya doesn't really think that's enough, and they had a scene together that I was just a little intrigued by, but also perplexed by, where Arya seems to basically be insinuating that Sansa wants to be in charge, and that's why she's not doing more to sort of lessen the sort of simmering uproar over some of Jon Snow's recent actions. And maybe I'm just an old man now, James. I was kind of like, Arya, what are you talking about? Like, Sansa's trying to, she's trying to like, keep some peace here. What are you going to do? Start cutting off the heads of the Lords of the Eyrie? I, I don't know. Maybe you're meant to feel that way, but like, this is the first time that I felt frustrated with Arya after many seasons of just being like, yeah, get him, get him, yeah. Which again, maybe part of the intention of that to sort of bring that sort of lifelong tension between the sisters forward. But I don't know. How did you kind of feel about what sort of developed between the two of them in this episode? episode yeah i found it interesting that uh, earlier in the season sansa was giving Jon snow shit for the way he handled things in front of uh <laughs> the lords in, in the great hall and now uh now that sansa's in charge you know, you know she has she has aria doing the same thing to her that she was doing to Jon snow it's like <laughs> yeah serves you right isn't as easy as it looks is it though at, at least at least aria waited for her to get off stage and, and then had had a quiet word with her about it you know in defense of aria's mood about this i mean aria has been in a state of fighting other people for like years now 
And there's almost a certain amount of PTSD going on on, yeah. on here. You, you know, when, when you're at war and struggling and sort of in these adversarial positions for, for years and you come back into this, I think it's probably easy to, to look at your sister as, as potentially another adversary too, you know, especially when they have this conflicted history. I'm sure she's never forgiven her for not taking her side in that incident in episode two where she didn't back up her story uh, with the Baker's boy and, uh, and Joffrey. Uh, So yeah, she's, she's, uh, you know, when you're an assassin, everything, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like, like like a nail. When you're an assassin, everybody (laughs) looks like a target. And Winterfell is a place where there's a lot of like niches carved into the hallways where you can lurk and hide and then spy (laughs) on people apparently. So, so yeah, you had to fast forward a bit, you know, she, she found, this letter that Littlefinger had, it seems like he wanted her potentially to find this is, is sort of the, the suggestion uh, that we're getting there. And for those who don't remember, this is a callback to season one. It seems to be, and we don't know 100% for sure, but from what it looks like when you freeze frame the episode and look at what's written on there, it seems to be the letter that Cersei forced Sansa to write to Rob Stark in season one, you're saying a few things. One, that the king is dead. Two, that Ned Stark that Ned Stark is a a traitor. And that three, ordering Rob to bend the knee. Now, Rob uh didn't fall for any of this. I mean he he reacted to the information in it, but he didn't bend the knee. You know, he 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 knew that that this was Cersei uh, speaking through uh, Sansa, but you know Arya and and Sansa don't know what impact this letter might have had. So so it's a potentially very damaging, you know, leaked email that's getting out here. <laughs> the emails, James. Gosh dang it! It all comes back to the emails. Like no one denies that Sansa is a really good politician, but the emails. Okay, uh, <laughs> th- th- not gonna not gonna go too far down that that particular realm of of, of topicality. But the way these characters live with history is something that runs throughout the storytelling of this show. And I kind of wrote about this a bit at the start of the season. We talked about this. Like coming into this season, there was kind of that idea of like, oh wow, like have the events of season six really just wiped the slate clean and are we kind of entering this new era and I'm just so fascinated to see like this kind of hanging Chad left over not getting political this kind of hanging plot line left over from the end of season one when Sansa was a very different person when she was doing what she thought was maybe right to even help her father she thought doing yeah, this I mean she, she 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 was a child being manipulated she she had no choice in this I mean yeah. she's it, you know in my mind you know she she's like totally blameless in this situation exactly so, though, though one thing I want to do a callback here I went back and rewatched that scene. There's an awesome line where Maester Pycelle, as part of this whole charade to to urge her, you know, he goes to Cersei. He's like, "Oh yeah, well, she's this Sansa. You know, she's a sweet thing right now, but in ten years, who knows what treason she might hatch?" With which led into one of my my, my favorite uh, Sansa lines, going, "I'm not going to hatch anything." But <laughs> here it is, years later, Cersei's on the Iron Throne, and how Stark is in rebellion you know to yeah. to her so yeah. it's like it's like this line that when you first saw it seemed totally ridiculous that Sansa would ever do that and now that's exactly kind of what's happening. yeah and I'm not really sure where this is going 
I, I would be incredibly uh, impressed slash horrified if where this goes is Arya essentially fully acting against Sansa. There is this kind of like roulette wheel of like, who is Arya going to kill with that dagger? Boy, it would be shocking. That would be the worst outcome of the prediction I made that Sansa was going to die this year, that that's how she dies. I, I certainly want to believe that even as Littlefinger was sort of waiting around the corner aware that Arya was following him, is there some other like triple agent pullback where Arya knew he knew she knew? You know, these are all things that will be interesting to see how this plays out. It's very clear that there's some reckoning that's going to take place circulating around all these characters up in Winterfell. These people who've been in Winterfell kind of all season, they've come together for a reason. I, I hope the sisters can learn to get together and that the war hawk and the diplomat hawk can find a way to coexist. Um, but uh, we'll we'll see, I guess. I, I'm Again, I'm, I, I'm not... It's not that I don't believe this plot line. It's just like, you know, after all the sort of, you know, triumphal, like, oh, the Starks are all back together and things are going so well. Like, it was sort of like, oh, boy, like, the the simmering sisterly tensions, the, the years have, have have only made them burn hotter, I guess. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But uh, speaking of the opposite of burning hotter, James, Eastwatch by the Sea, the North's finest bed and breakfast. There's almost something kind of like, really wonderfully fan fictional wish fulfilling about the scene we got at the end of the episode where you got oh, absolutely Jon Snow, Davos Seaworth, Jorah Mormont, Gendry and his big hammer. Um, they all arrive up there. Who's there waiting for them? Tormund. And who else is waiting for them? The Brotherhood. And there's the hound just sort of like lying down half asleep. Uh, how did you kind of feel about just that sort of moment of everyone coming in and being like, I know you and I know you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Does it make sense that a group of seven would leave and it would be those seven characters together? No, no, I don't think it does. I don't think, I don't think it makes like, real sense at all, but do I love it? Yeah, I do love it because, you know, who doesn't want to see those characters together? So you have to do a little suspension of disbelief that these characters that really don't like each other for the most part, which of course makes it even even better, really, are all going to team up. And with all the people that they have at Eastwatch and all the people that they have at, at, at Dragonstone that could have been backing them up, that these are the seven that are going to go out, you know, in, you know, north of the wall. Uh, to to try and capture a white and bring it back. So yeah, it's like a bit of suspension of disbelief, but it's this total magnificent uh, dissonant seven that 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 they're bringing together. The, the sort of ocean seven uh, assembling the team moment, and you, you know they're not going to get along. You're going to know they're going to face some deadly confrontation. You know that. Many of them potentially might not even come back, but, uh, you know, it, it really jazzes you up for for what comes next. Totally. Yeah. I mean, what I was thinking was like there's a different era of adaptation style where this was like the Game of Thrones movie. Right. Like before the era when we sort of took these sacred nerd beloved texts and like directly adapted them to the point of having many seasons of people walking places. There's like some like, you know, action movie version where they were like, all right, who are like you know, the, the seven or eight most mismatched, like, badass characters. Who should they fight? Ice zombies? Great. Send them up there. Good. Like, two hours, we got it. And I was very 
very struck by that, and I love just some great directorial choices by Matt Shackman, who's the freaking Miguel Sapochnik of this season. But that moment of them sort of the camera pulling back through their ranks as they're all kind of looking at each other and then setting off. That was super fun. What a, what a great way to sort of wrap the episode, right? Like, yeah. just moment of highest energy. There's a lot this season. And the show, show's gotten some criticism of this, but it's, you know, the kind of the most spoiled criticism that that can be made. And that is, is that, well, this season feels the least like the books, the least like the show traditionally has in terms of, you know, you, you have these books that, that tend to be very slow burns that tend to do these amazing twists of disappointment, you, you know, and, and, and where you have all these things where you think characters are going to meet up and then they don't, you know, they're, they're, and, and where, where sort of reality interferes in, in some tragic way to deny the traditional pleasures of, of narrative. And, this season has been very much let's give the audience traditional pleasures of narrative after denying them a lot of these pleasures for, for so long. It's like, you want these two characters to meet? Yeah, let's have them meet. You want these characters to reunite? Sure, let's do, do that. You, you want to waste no time walking on roads and 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 riding horses and, and sailing on boats? Yeah, let's just get rid of that. It's, it's really giving the audience what they want. And I, I think it's really hard to fault a show in its penultimate shortened season for doing that. I mean, it's clearly working. I mean, the ratings are at, at all time high. People are, are just loving the, these episodes. I do think that that it's accurate to say that it is different than what was before. But if you're going to sit down and sort of calculate how you, how are you going to end this show you, now that you're so beyond the scope of the books what are you going to do? Are you going to err on the side of, of sticking to what the show used to be? Or are you just going to sort of floor it and do everything you kind of want to do? You know, mm-hmm. you know, I think I would have made the same choice. Definitely. And again, like setting us up for a big episode next week. We'll see who's left alive. I'm betting Jon Snow makes it. Other than that, not so sure. We'll see. It'd be especially poignant if Gendry returns just long enough to <laughs> go down swinging his mighty hammer. Um, but uh, would George not R. R. Martin any... would do that. <laughs> George R. R. Martin would have killed him like on the boat trip over from King's Landing. So the fact that he's even still around is pretty that remarkable. Is 100% true. He'll <laughs> be like 10 chapters of the boat trip and then the boat sinks and then it's a like, oh, 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 rest in peace, uh, Quentin Martell. Most oh, people yeah. who watch the show will never even know your name. Um, James, this leads to the most fun part of every show. It's time for the trivia contest. Last week's question, who on this show have we seen kill both a parent and a child of the same family? We were looking for three answers. Uh, Ramsey Bolton, Arya Stark, and Walder Frey. If you want to argue that Frey didn't actually do any of the killing, I would say he did. He was in the room. He was in the room where it happened. Congratulations to our winner. This week's trivia prize... A Lannister Always Pays His Debts t-shirt. Now, to win this prize, you have to answer this question. Quick reminder, you have to email your answer to gotpodcast at ew.com. One winner will be selected at random. You might be the lucky winner. This week's question, it's a simple one. So, a lot of characters had speaking roles in this week's episode. Many of them were born on the Westerosi continent. Who of those characters... We're saying born on the Westerosi continent, not Essos, not Pentos. 
Who among them has, as of the last time we saw them in this episode, traveled the furthest from where they were born? We're saying last time we saw them in this episode, it's hard I know because characters are traveling everywhere. Who was the furthest away from where they were born? All right. You got that? Very particular. Email the answers. GOTpodcast at EW.com. While you're at it, if you have any fun thoughts, email us, GOTpodcast at EW.com. Going into two more episodes here. Lots to talk about. You can always tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. I'm at Darren Franich. And if you like what you've heard today, let us know. Go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a rate. Give us a review. We love hearing from you all. We love talking about Game of Thrones. Two more episodes coming up. No doubt a lot of deaths. No doubt a lot of Gendry swinging his big hammer. We'll be back same time next Monday for more of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. The Game of Thrones TV show is a sprawling work with lots of characters. The Game of Thrones books are even more sprawling. Here's a great way to get deeper into the world that George R. R. Martin created. iBooks has an exclusive version of Game of Thrones called the Enhanced Editions, helping keep track of the storylines and the characters. There's fun interactive maps. There's family trees. These books are available exclusively on iBooks, so go to apple.co slash Game of Thrones to check them out. Not available in all countries, but probably available where you live. The Game of Thrones enhanced editions enhance the experience and help you remember who people are.